everyone, welcome to the Towards Health Podcast. I'm your guest host, Jared Taylor. Joining us on today's episode is Alexandra uh, Moens, Director of Product Marketing, and Adam Wyckoff, Director of Product Clinical Trials. Both of them work at H1. Thank you both for joining me here today. How are you? We're good. Excited Thanks to be here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Excited to have both of you. Uh, today's core topic of discussion is around uh, divergent diversity. So we're going to talk a little bit about kind of where the world is headed in terms of health equity and, and uh, diversity and clinical trials um, and bringing drugs to market. So we have uh, some cool topics here today. We'd love to start out. Uh, we'll go one by one. We'll start with you, um, Alexandra. Give us a little bit about your background. And then Adam, we'd love to hear from you after that. So um, my name is Alexandra. I'm a PharmD. Uh, I've been working with clinical and medical affairs teams from pharmaceutical companies for a number of years in order to help them understand how t- clinical trials are running, what kind of data they can leverage in order to get clinical trials up and going better and faster, um, get more diversity into the trials, and how to bring their mar- uh, drugs to market specifically. So that's me. And I'm Adam. Um... I graduated from Emory University undergrad uh, with a business degree. Um, I worked for IBM in, at Watson in on their health division in product management. I then have worked for two different startups, most recently a uh, startup Psyaps, which is an oncology data platform where I where, like ran and scaled our clinical trials business. Um, and I've been with H1 for over a year and couldn't be happier uh, driving the uh, trials product with the help of Alex. Thank you both for, for those intros. Um, super interesting company you're with, too. Uh, we've had the, the chance to talk with a lot of people from the company uh, thus far. Uh, it was Anatoly. Uh, had some great conversations with Anatoly. Obviously, Ariel as well. Um, and just... Excited to continue bringing on people from, from H1 to talk about what they're doing and um, the enormous mission, vision that, that you all have. Uh, let's, let's kick off the discussion here today. So you both have been in this field for a while, right? Uh, how have you seen the, the terms diversity and health equity change and evolve um, in your own experience? And so one by one, I guess I would love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Sure. So um, from my perspective, I've seen diversity starting to pop up being a key topic about three, four years ago, where a lot of companies have really started to like make so, take a look at themselves and look at whether the trials that they're executing, whether that actually has enough diverse patient populations in them. Um, but the tricky piece of that really has been that there was... L- in most cases, either not enough data to really support any of the statements that they were looking at or that they were trying to make. Um, And they also didn't really have a good strategy behind it. And so what we've been seeing most recently, especially in the last, let's say, two years since the beginning of COVID, is that diversity has become a key topic, a really important thing that people are really starting to think about much more. And they really know the urgency around it because the impact of not having enough diversity into their their clinical studies has an immediate impact in 
the lack of patients that they can reach upon the moment that their trial uh, or that their drug comes to market. So that's how I've been really seeing that diversity element becoming much more important into the clinical trial space and also further on post-treatment um, launch. Yeah, for me, um, you know, I'm looking at it from the product side. Um, I'm all about the data elements. Um, so, you know, at first, diversity, um, like I think Alex is right about like four or five years ago. Um, when you were talking diversity and inclusion, you were talking exclusively like race and ethnicity. Um, that has expanded considerably. Um, so now there's a lot about uh, socioeconomic status. Um, so serving underrepresented communities is like a big part of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, understanding age disparities, um, income disparities, education disparities um, are all kind of like pieces to this picture. Um, so it's not as concrete as it, it maybe um, started out to be, but I think that the intent is still the same, which is to get as many people from as many different backgrounds on clinical trials as humanly possible so that we can understand the adverse effects on different groups uh, before those drugs hit the market. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's been interesting to see how it's, the, the terms have expanded over the years. Um, you only ever heard several years ago, really, health equity in regards to just strictly race. Um, and there's obviously way more to it. And thank you both for sharing your thoughts on that. Uh, so um, when you look at just the space and the industry, there was recently a survey that uh, published by Fierce, and this will be in the show notes, uh, Fierce Healthcare, uh, so people can look at it. But it was basically that uh, where data was identified as the, the largest barrier to acting out in health equity initiatives, um, and that was followed by budget, guidelines, and govern uh, governance. So it was, it was funny that nearly half of the respondents in this, in this um, survey did not know if they collect race, ethnicity, language, data on their care population. Um, so basically, more than half didn't know this. So, you know, that being said, um, you know, I know that's a lot to take in, though. Like, let, let's talk a little bit more about how do you think not knowing this information translates uh, to clinical trials? So um, from my personal perspective, I see two really big things there. And one thing that we've really noticed as a company as well is the information that is available, when, it, for example, when it comes to race or when it comes to ethnicity of patients is very differently available in different locations. For example, if you look at the US or if you look at Brazil, that kind of information is much more um, available and much easier to access. Whereas when you compare that to other locations, like for example, Europe, or when you look at um, Asia Pacific, that kind of information is either not captured for privacy reasons or not captured because it's in a lot of cases also not necessarily as impactful or as different as you would expect it to be in locations like North America or even South America. So what we've seen there is that the difference in data availability is huge in different locations and that it's also a matter of trying to look at other angles, other elements that um, do also capture that you know, difference in patient populations at the end of the line. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is, of course, also the fact that this kind of information is extremely sensitive. So capturing it also has an immediate impact into 
you know, what are you capturing and how you're supposed to be processing that information, keeping it safe, making sure that there's not going to be any kind of data leaks that could potentially impact your end patient populations at the end of the line. So those two elements, I believe, do play a big piece into that, into what you were saying of the data not necessarily being available always or being really hard to uh, access. Yeah, and, and I would say, um, you know, I was kind of laughing when I was hearing that stat because it's like, if you aren't sure if you're collecting it, you're probably not collecting it um, and you probably don't have access to it. Um, so you probably missed the boat there. Um, I think that like uh, in a lot of ways, um, there are creative ways to actually like look at this. I think that like one of the benefits of having somebody like Alex on the team is like she helps to bring that European perspective. Um, and so like, you know, some of this stuff is like so U.S. centric of like the way that we look at it. Um, and in order to solve these diversity, equity and inclusion problems, we need to think about it from like a global perspective. Um, and so I think that that's the benefit of like what we're able to accomplish here at H1 um, is we're looking at it from like that global perspective. How do we harbor all those sources together? And, um, you know, what I'd say to all those companies that, you know, may or may not be collecting it is don't worry, we're collecting it for you. Yeah, thank you both. Um, it is interesting that you have uh, on the European uh, perspective from from Alex. Um you know, I, I think it, it says it also speaks to your company, right? You didn't just hire a team within the, the U.S. You went, you hired the best from all over, which is just going to continue to help. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're also, you're also uh, doing what you're telling people, right? Which um, it seems straightforward, uh, but still, still uh, there's, there's some um, uncommon practices today. So thank you for that. And, and by the way, like I only gave you a snippet of that article and I know you probably don't have the article right in front of you, both of you. We will put that in the show notes for everyone checking out um, th this episode. So they will be able to see that. Um, yeah, just one thing else I'll, I'll say is like, I, I definitely think we're living and breathing it at H1. There's like a lot of different uh, initiatives talking about like um, diversity within the company, how to, you know, we, we see diversity metrics on our own business uh, when it comes to hiring, when it comes to all of this. Uh, one of the things that really attracted me to H1 is, um, you know, I'm somebody that's on the earlier side of their career, just like over 30. Um, having a founder that's 28 kind of showed to me, we're going to do, we're going to promote and, you know, drive the people in this business who are who bring value and it's not about how long you've been there what age you are um, that sort of thing um, so i think that we really do live and breathe that love to hear it um yeah ariel and the rest of the team are just super great so you're, you're both in a amazing situation amazing company that uh, you're going to help build um let, let's let's go let's talk a little bit about without giving names right to to the clients at h1 but what do you see working uh what do you see in working with these clients as the biggest barrier to reaching diverse population uh, patient populations sure i'll start so for me it's like connecting with the right team at the right time um so is diversity an, an initiative that you are like focused on at your company? Um, and then do we have the right team at your company? Um, and then if we, even if we have both of those things, are you actively running a clinical trial and are you in that like site selection 
principal investigator identification phase um, because I think that you know all three of those things kind of need to come together nicely. Um, and then when they do, we're able to make a big impact. Um, you know, we're working with a client in oncology um, where we've been able to like pull all of that together for their breast cancer studies um, right at the time when they were actually going out and looking for those investigators. Um, and so it, it's really a time and place. Um, but I think that the smartest companies in this field say, this is an initiative and we are going to have hundreds of clinical trials. And so we might as well set this up right now, even if we aren't running that study at this moment in time. Yeah, and maybe just to add to that. So what I've also noticed being uh, that number of our customers are starting to be much more open about is um, they're starting to communicate with us their diversity strategies from the perspective of what we're currently doing. Does that make sense? Or is there anything more that we can do? Like they're testing the theories out. And I think that, you know, trial and error elements of how they are acting is definitely a key element to longer term success. It's also important that companies are aware of themselves and being honest enough to say, okay, we didn't do well, we need to do better. And so we've seen that very recently, even in a couple of news articles where a couple of big companies have actually openly communicated, we just missed the mark here and we need to try again. And I think that's that openness, that communication style, that more, you know, we want to share our perspective in order to learn and be better in the future is key for long-term success, both for small companies as well as for large companies. And that's really something that we can help with. For us, it's not just a matter of, you know, here's some data, now do with it what you want. It's more a matter of, this is how we see other companies working with this data. Um, and these are some suggestions that we would have for you, given the strategy that you guys are implementing. And testing that out and seeing how that really works back is a key to long-term success. Yeah, I think it's a, a lot of what Alex is talking about. Like, it's about like establishing that baseline. You need to kind of like know where you are, which is why um, it's so critical to be capturing some of this. Um, you need to know where the indication that you're working with is. Um, so like, let's say in multiple myeloma, um, you know, 20% of the patients are African-American and yet 4% are actually getting onto studies. Um, and so you need to know like where these disparities are to start and what baseline for success looks like. Success is maybe, you know, being representative of the disease type in that 20%. And maybe just to add to Adam's points, um, what we've seen initially as like the first beginnings of bringing diversity into the studies was we need to be working with doctors who are treating a specific population because they have access to these patients. But working with these doctors just like that doesn't necessarily mean that these doctors actually are going to have any kind of influence into these patients, that they're going to positively motivate them to be in the study. And so what we're really doing is taking it a step further and really being able to see why are patients committed to become part of a study and helping that, you know, the why factors, helping answer those things, for example, by working with a doctor who is from a same racial background as the patients that you're trying to target, because that patient feels much more at ease with that doctor than they would feel with, you know, um, just any other, let's say, average white male doctor, 
that you would find anywhere else. So not the stereotype, but it is definitely a thing that is also happening. You have to understand not just a potential solution, but you have to understand why a problem is occurring so you can solve it at the start instead of at the end. Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to where we started. Like, um, th there's a number of uh, there's a number of factors here. It's like there's the patient uh, racial mix, uh, but there's also the doctor's uh, racial mix and the doctor's language is spoken. Um, and so, like in my past life, um, I worked on the patient recruitment side for uh, you know helping different hospitals like Henry Ford recruit patients. And to Alex's point there. You know, we had patients tell us like to our face, we don't want to run any study with anyone who wouldn't look like a member of their family. Um, so that means you need to really like align uh, patient race with provider race, um, as well as languages spoken. Yeah, it's um, thank you both for your perspectives, too. And you're really playing off of each other really well, which you're in totally different areas right right now so it's not like you're in the same room so really appreciate how you guys are answering questions together uh, quick so i have a few more questions i want to just dive into with you really two more um in terms of so how do, how does trusting physicians and investigators basically with in communities and drug companies like factor into basically everything that you were just saying If there is no trust, there's no end result. That really is what it comes down to. If you cannot work with doctors that patients can trust, then you're never going to be able to get patients committed into a trial because one of the biggest problems that patients have in, in order to get onto a trial is not just, you know, I am aware of the fact that I can enter. That's one thing. I always look at it from an ABC perspective. The awareness is an issue. A lot of times they're just not aware of the fact that these trials exist and that they could participate in it. Two is the burden. What is the burden on a person, like on a patient's life? And third is the C, is a trust and that, you know, confidence into the trial, into the, um, the company, but also into the doctor. And that confidence level is actually the most important one. If you don't trust someone, you will never you know, buy into their story or buy into whatever they're trying to get you on board on, especially in a trial, which is already so a lot of, you know, you're kind of taking a leap of faith there um, because you don't know exactly what to expect. The clinical trial is there to test things out. So without that level of trust, you'll never get anywhere. And that trust doesn't just apply between patient and doctor. It also applies between company and doctor. Because if the company and the doctor don't have a full level of trust and a full transparency element between them, what's going to happen is that doctor is also going to start doubting the treatments. And if they're starting to doubt the treatments, one, they will not be able to possibly like really get the message across with the patients. But two, after the trial has been done and the, tr uh, the treatment needs to come to market, you also need people who are going to be, you know, your voice, your vo uh, spokesman. You need people who can actually positively talk about this treatment and talk about the positive impact that the treatment could have. So without that trust, you're nowhere. Thank you so yeah. much for both sharing. Oh, Adam, Adam. Oh, yeah, we need, sorry. Yeah, we need your take. 
my uh, my dog started licking my leg there. So the uh, I think that the the main thing from my side is like I, I completely agree with Alex around uh, the trust uh, piece to this, and I think that like one thing that H one's able to do really well is help facilitate that trust between the life sciences company and the doctors. So it's about finding the right doctors who have the right infrastructure within their team to actually be successful in these trials. And that comes from understanding the trials, their experience, understanding these diversity factors, and then also potentially understanding their past performance on other trials. Um, and so I think that like, you know, those are all good indications and, and data points that can help build that trust to facilitate a good long-term relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's really interesting. Um, it's interesting to see the relationships. We're, we're not going to talk about them, right? But the relationships and, and the clients that you've you've put together, it's super impressive. Um, can we talk? Let's talk a little bit about. This is my last question too, and then we can we can wrap up here. So thank you both for your time here today. Uh, how can uh, data mitigate or basically begin to combat? Uh, the challenges that we just discussed when it comes to clinical trials or with bringing drugs to market? So if, if you look at it really honestly, a study, I think it was by McKinsey recently, um, showed that about 30% of all the data that's available in, you know, out there in the world is actually in some way or form coming from healthcare. Now, as there's so much data out there, like it's huge, um, that can only mean that a lot of the answers to the questions that we're all looking for is actually available in the data, as long as you know where to look and as long as you know how to connect the data pieces, like all of those data elements back together. I think that's really one thing that pharma companies in general, but all companies, but pharma specifically, has been really struggling with how can we connect these data points back together in order to get smarter perspectives. And so that's a little bit what, for example, Adam was saying before with, you know, that building that level of trust is really required to get good end results. But how do you get to that level of trust? Because you need the information on, you know, what kind of experience do they have? What kind of performance did they have in the past? Um, what kind of trials, publications, presentations have they done and with which companies? Like really getting that complete view is the only way that you can really make smarter data-driven decisions at the end of the line. And I think there, what is the key piece to all of this is having a partner, like for example, H1, who can help you bring all of those data pieces, those critical data pieces back together, sew it all back into one consolidated view that can help you make those data-driven decisions. We can do that heavy lifting. We can make sure that you can get access to the, to the critical data that's out there that you don't necessarily see yourself or that you don't necessarily have access to yourself. But we can make sure that we bring that all back together in order for companies, for teams to get those really smarter insights um, in order to drive data-driven decision-making. Because if you don't have that, then you're just guessing. And that's what we're trying to avoid here. So, yeah, I, and I agree. Um, I, I think that, Alex, that's well said. Like, 
Um, at the end of the day, it's about pulling the entire picture together when you're looking at a doctor, um, when you're looking at a site um, in the right context for your given trial, for your given indication. Um, and so all that data needs to be kind of like harvested and up to date. So it needs to be apples to apples um, with what you're actually looking to compare it on. Um, and it also needs to connect across the care continuum. So all of these data elements need to connect from the trials that you're working on to the sites you're working with, to the uh, you know healthcare providers that you're actually working with. All three of those pieces need to be interconnected um, to facilitate the right relationship there. Well, by the way, thank you both so much for being so eloquent and answering all of my questions here today. Uh, I really appreciate it. I hope we can have you come back on the podcast and dive into some other topics as well, but you two are amazing. Um, really appreciate having you on and can't wait to continue to follow the progress of H1, see what you continue to build. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye.